fun to jump back into John after our three weeks away, and I think in, in the providence of God, it's a great passage to jump back into after we've been talking about church membership for three weeks. We've been, as uh, if you've been with us, uh, diving into all these details around our desire to begin rolling out formal church membership, and I think sometimes in all the, the, the minutiae that does need to be discussed and the things that need to be uh, worked through, it's easy to lose, lose track perhaps of what is the heart of this fellowship that we are trying to, to preserve and trying to protect and, and seeking to serve. And this morning it's going to be, I think, an incredible, uh, just tonic <laughs> for our soul as we look at Jesus' sort of second half of his teaching on this concept of abiding in the vine. Uh, we, we now these over a month ago uh, looked at uh, what Jesus taught as far as the picture of abiding in the vine. But this morning we're going to have a chance to look at him laying out just the practical way that this works in our lives. And if abiding has been a concept that's felt a little bit mystical or a little bit mysterious, and how do I actually go about doing that? I hope this will be helpful. I know for me that that's been a challenge over the years. Uh, there's all this wonderful language we like to use about resting in the Lord, abiding in the Lord, just living in the light of God's sovereignty and all these sorts of things. And that's great, rich language, unless you're like, well, it's morning, I'm up, now what do I do? How does that look today? And I think this morning will be helpful in that. And for our scripture reading this morning, I actually want to begin by reading a very helpful commentary on this passage that I came across this week. Uh, very insightful, probably because it was written by the same guy that wrote our passage this morning. And so if you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 John chapter 3, I'd like to invite us to read this morning 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. And to honor the reading of God's Word as you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me. In the life of John, it's fun to see some of his later writing as one who walked with Christ, as one who had the chance to listen to Christ's teaching, and then whose writing ministry went so late into his life to be able to see how these truths sort of percolated through his heart by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then came out in, in uh, his letters that he wrote later in life. In 1 John chapter 3, we begin in verse 11, it says this, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And that's the teaching we'll get to next week in John. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him 
because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we do desire to be those who abide in your Son, who know what that means both in the truth of what you have accomplished for us through Christ, our justification and our salvation. We also desire to abide in you through our sanctification, the way in which we are living out your commandments, especially with one another. And we confess that apart from your Spirit being within us, we cannot abide. You must keep us in yourself. And we ask that you would continue to do that even as in confidence we know you will for you have promised to complete that work you have begun. So make us fruitful, Lord, we pray. Make us fruitful early. May we be able to bear such fruit as Christ said would remain and be a testament to your glory in this world. We pray, Lord, just this morning that we would be encouraged in your word and in that encouragement our eyes would be open to comprehend how we may become more like Jesus Christ as we abide in him. And so for this, we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said, abiding in Christ is often a nebulous concept, and I really am excited to break this down this morning in this passage. I've really enjoyed the study of it. Um, It's led to some great conversations, even in my own home. I'll allude to some of those. Among uh, my children, I I hope this will be helpful uh, to you this morning. And we're going to try to take it in a couple of different chunks. And the first is by looking at verses 9 through 11 in John 15. We're picking up in verse 9, which goes right after that that great teaching that Jesus had wrapped up last time we were in John on, on the vine and the branches. And in verses 9 through 11, Jesus is going to make an argument for what constitutes the joy of abiding in Christ. If you're taking notes this morning in your outlines, hopefully that's your first blanks there. The joy of abiding in Christ in verses 9 through 11. And Jesus is going to build a case for us. He's going to say, "Let let me show you how this works. This piece leads to this piece, leads to this piece, leads to this piece. And he's going to lay that out for us. And so if you've got your Bibles open to John 15, verse 9 shows us that abiding in Christ is abiding in his love. Verse 9 Jesus says this, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. And this this series of connections that John is making here, that Jesus is teaching here, are really quite profound. And I want us to notice that it begins with the love of the Father for the Son, just as the Father has loved me. And that might seem at first like an obvious thing or just a passing note, but it is a pattern we see repeatedly in Scripture, and I think one that we often tend to actually get backwards. And this is one of those conversations I had this week. I was speaking with one of my children last night, in fact, so this uh, made it into the notes last minute, uh, last night about a relationship that they were finding difficult. Anybody ever had a relationship that they found difficult? I'll let my daughter know it was just her. Uh, Being that I was studying this very passage. We went to the passage. I pointed out that our love for others begins in the love of the Father and works its way downwards. 
Oh, said my child, I thought it was the other way around. I thought our love started with the bottom and worked its way up. And it was interesting to think about it that way, because isn't that often how we act? We, when trying to live out our call to become like Jesus, we begin with what we think we can accomplish on our own and try to build from there. It's like we're trying to build our own Tower of Babel with virtue blocks and stack them up to heaven where we will someday just sort of step off the top into heaven and impress God and say, look how far I've come in trying to build up my love to be like your love. That isn't how it works. Only in God is found the essence of those virtues that we as image bearers of God are meant to imitate. Whether that's love or justice or goodness or holiness or patience, we look to heaven and see descending from the clouds a chain of righteousness to which we must attach our lives by faith. When we speak of love, the first link in the chain is between the Father and the Son. And John himself gives us some insight into this great love between the Father and the Son that Jesus is referencing. In John 17, 24, it says this, and hopefully we can rattle through these on the screen if you're a little rusty on your sword drills. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. First, I want us to observe that the Father's love for the Son is an eternal love and it is a glory-giving love. John 3.35 The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Secondly, here notice that the Father's love for the Son is a sacrificial, gift-giving love. Look at John 5.20 for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Thirdly, the Father's love for the Son is a self-revealing and relationship-keeping love. John 10:17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. The Father's love for the Son delights in the obedience of the Son. And what a glorious and perfect love this is. It's a love that has no beginning. It will have no end. It does not wax or wane. Human love is often like the moon going through its cycles, is it not? Some of you have experienced that in your friendships, even in your marriages that's been a struggle. But the love of God is like the sun, a full burning orb at all times. And that love of the Father for the Son is the first link in the chain. But the next link is the Son's love for us. Us. And by direct comparison, Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. And we see this as well. His love for us is an eternal love. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. His love for us is a glory-giving love. Second Thessalonians 2 
verses 13 to 14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. His love for us is a sacrificial love. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love for us is a gift-giving love. Ephesians 4, 7 to 8, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And his love for us is a self-revealing and relationship-keeping love. 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And finally, his love for us also delights in our obedience to him. And Jesus introduces this theme by calling us to abide in this love he has shown us. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And as a segue into this is how you live in obedience under that love, he says, let me just summarize it for you. Abide in this love like the love the Father has for me and the very love that I have for you. Without this great chain of love descending to us from the Father through the Son, we could not have hope to keep the command here at the end of verse 9. But with such love as been shown us, We are ready to abide by his strength and according to his example. And that's what Jesus turns to in verse 10. Abiding in his love is keeping his commandments. That's the second step in this argument that Jesus is laying out for us. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. There's not a lot of daylight in this verse. It really couldn't be clearer, could it? Abiding, ready, is obeying. Obeying is abiding. This is how you do it. Abiding is obeying. Obeying is abiding. And I think that's a little bit countercultural for us. When we think of abiding in God's love, perhaps we think of sitting at our kitchen table for devotions, on that mythical morning when everything is quiet and clean, the perfect Christian worship song is playing in the background at just the right volume to be soothing but not distracting. There's a cup of coffee if you're into that sort of thing. It's sending off those perfect wisps of steam towards the ceiling. Your favorite psalm is open before you. You know, one of the, the gushy kinds that David probably wrote after watching a sunset. Your eyes are closed, and you are just abiding. Right? I think that's kind of how we think of this term. That's what abiding is, right? Well, first of all, if you manage to have mornings like that, blessings. <laughs> blessings on you, brother and sister. Enjoy them. Please do. Secondly, that's not actually what Jesus tells us here is the heart of abiding in his love. That's not what it looks like primarily. Abiding in the love of Jesus is intensely practical. It is active. 
and it is above all things obedient to his commands. That's the essence of abiding in the love of Jesus. The Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And some of you are going to have a chance to take that step here next week at our Church Behind the Church, which is exciting. And it goes on to say, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You could rephrase that to simply say, go make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to abide in Jesus' love. Teaching someone to to do all, to observe all that Jesus has commanded and teaching somebody to abide in the love of Jesus is teaching them to do the same thing. If glory is the current of divine electricity, nerd alert, then what we are seeing here is the neutral wire. I warned you. The power line, right, is love and it flows from the source, the Father, to the destination, us where the work needs to get done. So the power line in this glory circuit is love. The neutral wire, what completes the circuit flowing back to us, to the Father from us, is obedience. That's the glory circuit. Love flowing one direction, obedience flowing the other direction. Always our perfect example, Jesus himself partakes in this obedience to the Father, just as he partakes in loving us like the Father. And that's why he describes that this obedience he is calling us to is an obedience that he himself has modeled. Keep my commandments the same way that I have shown you how I keep my Father's commandments. He's the perfect demonstration of abiding in God's love through his own perfect obedience. And in him we see the perfect, complete glory circuit functioning described perhaps most vividly in the language of Philippians 2. You know it well, beginning in verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, note that, for this reason, in response to the obedience of Christ, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father loves seeing the light bulb of his glory go off in the life of all of his children, and he does so through this pattern of love and obedience. Notice that our obedience to Jesus and Jesus' obedience to the Father are both described here as abiding in God's love. And you're like, yes, you repeated that word. But I do want you to notice that he doesn't describe it as earning or keeping or deserving God's love. This isn't a transaction. Jesus is not saying, if you will obey, then I will love you. He's saying, if you wish to enjoy my love... You will do so by obeying. It's a description of what receiving and enjoying the love of God looks like, not a condition for receiving and enjoying the love of God. Love and commandment keeping are simply principle and application. As Jesus himself taught us, you remember back in Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked that question, what's the greatest commandment in the law? 
And in verse 37 of Matthew 22, Jesus responded and said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Key verse, though, verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The laws of God spell out how we are to love. That's what they do. Breaking God's commandments doesn't jeopardize love the way cheating on a test jeopardizes our ability to pass a class. It jeopardizes love the way smashing a piano with a sledgehammer jeopardizes the quality of the music that piano can play. Does that make sense? Sometimes think disobedience to God triggers the punishment clause and he withholds love from us. And God says, no, if you want to enjoy beautiful music, my commandments are the notes. It's how that music is made. The laws of a just society are not designed to make staying out of jail a challenging test. They are designed to allow peaceable people to enjoy the harmony of a just community. The commandments of the family of God are not designed to make maintaining the favor of the Father a constant and fearful obstacle. They are designed to teach us how to enjoy the favor of God. If enjoying the love of God is likened to experiencing the warmth of a fire, then His commands are akin to saying, don't leave the hearth and wander out into the blizzard. Speaking of enjoying the love of God, Jesus turns to the topic of joy next in verse 11. And I think it is significant that he does not immediately turn to clarifying what his commandments are. He said, keep my commandments. But he doesn't then go on directly to say, and this is what they are, which is what he's going to do in verse 12. But he first interjects why his commands ought to be a greatly desired thing for us. Before he tells us what constitutes our obedience, he tells us what should compel our obedience and we see this in verse 11 keeping his commandments is experiencing his joy keeping his commandments is experiencing his joy these things verse 11 jesus says these things i have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you your joy may be made full This verse contains a summarizing phrase that Jesus has used four times. Well, he will use, haha, sneak sneak peek, used four times in this upper room discourse. When Jesus says here, these things I have spoken to you, here he says, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. In verse 1 of chapter 16, he'll say, so that you may be kept from stumbling. In verse 4, so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them, speaking of those who will persecute the disciples. In verse 33, so that in me you may have peace. This is how Jesus wraps up a chunk of teaching in the upper room discourse. He gives us all this instruction and then he says, and I've told you all this stuff so that you'll get this point, so that you won't miss this thing. And this is that first of those four summary statements. Jesus has taught us to abide in him as branches abide in a vine and to do so by abiding in his love and to do that by keeping his commandments. Why? Why did he teach us these things? So that we would have a joy that is full and that is divine. That's why. That's why he's teaching us this abiding principle 
so that we would have joy that is full and divine. Not so that we would be good people. Not so that we would lift ourselves out from you know, our brokenness and, and be able to just say, hey, look, world, we are good people now. No. And not so that you, know, you won't make the Heavenly Father upset. Jesus isn't saying, let me explain the house rules. God's kind of touchy. The Father gets really upset really easily. He's hung up on this whole holiness thing. So let me give you some ground rules so that he doesn't get mad at you now that we're bringing you into the family. Sometimes I think we act like that. We read our Bibles and we're like, man, I don't think I deserve to to belong here. What do I got to do so that God doesn't get mad and kick me out? No. Jesus says, I'm teaching you how to keep my commandments so you can abide in my love so that you can enjoy the status you now have before the Father in me. This is how to enjoy that. And the joy of Jesus is not your garden variety joy. It's not, if you will, display sword joy. You know, the kind that looks really dangerous and beautiful hanging on your wall on that little cool plaque, but would actually like fall apart if you ever tried to handle it. Sometimes our Christian joy is like that. It looks good on the wall. Just don't try to do anything with it. No, on this night of all nights, the fact that Jesus has any joy at all is pretty staggering. If you think about what Jesus is considering and what he is facing, for him to say that he has any joy to give on this night is amazing. But he does. And as Hebrews 12:2 reminds us, Jesus endured the cross with his eyes fixed on the joy set before him. And surely, even now, as Jesus taught this to his disciples, he was holding that joy before his mind's eye for his own encouragement and strengthening. And let me pause here briefly, because this joy that Christ offers and that we are to experience is a unique Christian blessing. There is a kind of joyful experience this world can have. It's that that passing but powerful feeling of elation and contentedness that the Hallmark Channel makes millions on. But the joy of Christ and the joy the Holy Spirit produces in us as part of his fruit in our lives is different. True joy is the settled gladness of a heart that loves and trusts God. True joy is the settled gladness of a heart that loves and trusts God. This is what Christian joy looks like. And you'll notice it has an object. The object must be God. If our joy comes from anything else, it cannot have a settled gladness when it faces the depths of just how broken this world is. And some of you know this too well. Some of you know what it's like to see every other source of joy in your life taken away. And to find God and God alone is sufficient to lift your spirits, no matter how low you may be brought. Jesus says, this is what I want to give to you. As I prepare to face the betrayal and abandonment of all of you disciples, 
as I prepare to face the horrific torture to this physical body that I've taken on for your sakes through the torturous beatings and then crucifixion that I'll be facing tomorrow, but as I prepare to do something no being in the universe will ever do again, and that is fully absorb all the wrath of God, I have joy because I am abiding in the love of the Father and I am obeying His commands. And this I give to you so that your joy too may be made full in a world, as Jesus is about to explain next week, that will also hate you. This is the heart Jesus had toward His Father. It's the source of His joy. It's the heart we are to have towards Jesus, which is to be for our joy And it's a joy that doesn't duck out of sight when suffering comes. But it's a joy that takes us by the hand, lifts our spirits supernaturally, draws us to God, and comes out the far side of the trial with even more gladness than before. And some of you have experienced that as well. That unique strengthening of the faith that is characteristic of Christians who suffer well. As James taught us, we are to count it all joy When we encounter trials, if our joy gives out when the trials come, it isn't joy from Christ that has failed. It was just the sticker labeled joy falling off of whatever other thing we had erroneously stuck it to. Whether that was actually self-sufficiency or our ability to distract ourselves from the pain or the company and care of others or anything else that isn't the love of God and an unshakable confidence in his promises to us. Peter wrote to Christians facing the beginnings of persecution and starting to see the clouds of more on the way. And we aren't quite there yet, but I think we can sympathize with this more than we used to. He wrote them this in 1 Peter 1, 7-8, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, and here he's talking about the fire of persecution, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, and that's attached to our obedience, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Those of you who love to read Christian biography, how many times have you seen that in history where the world has stopped to marvel at a Christian whose joy cannot be extinguished but just grows stronger and stronger in the face of trial. This is what the church needs to hear more of today. And this is what the church needs to experience more of today. This kind of joy in loving God and obeying Him regardless of our circumstances. And so the circle is complete. The Father's perfect love is demonstrated to the Son. The Son's perfect love is demonstrated to us. Our response is marked by the attitude of joy as we anticipate the love of Jesus. It is also marked by the act of joy as we obey his commandments. And Jesus similarly is joyful in the love of his Father and obedient to him. And so a few lessons here as we prepare to look at the second half of our passage this morning. And the first is, is this. In light of this example that Jesus has given us, is our love godly? Is our love, you might say, godlike? 
I'm specifically here talking about our love for one another, as Jesus will be clarifying in just a moment. Is our love for one another rooted in the eternal love of God? Is it conditional? Is it something that comes and that goes? Or is it based on the fact that this is God's family? Have you ever had that conversation with some of your children? Why do I have to love my brother? Because he's your brother. But why should that matter? Because family means something. Our love for one another ought to be this unconditional commitment of love to whoever the Father has said is part of his family. And it should be a glory-giving love. Not a glory-stealing or a glory-hoarding love, but it's a, it's a love that says, I wish to see the glory of Jesus Christ made evident in the lives of all those around me by encouraging them, by supporting them, by ministering and serving. I want to see glory spread as far as it can be and be a conduit for the gracious, glory-giving nature of God. It should be a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love. Whereas we come as, as uh, excuse me, in Philippians 2, as Paul taught us, we consider each other as more important than ourselves. And so we come to each other with the posture of a servant. We are willing to sacrifice. It's a gift-giving love. It's marked by generosity. We aren't creating our own little kingdoms and piling up our own little resources for our own selfish reasons. It's a self-revealing and relationship-keeping love. And this is what starts to make the Pacific Northwest nervous. Because, yeah, you know, I'll do my little ministry stint and I'll give my resources here and I'll invest in that thing there. And then, good, you guys go take care of it. But to be, to be given the expectation that I need to be self-disclosing I need to share my soul with my family. I need to invite other people to see who I am and together for us to knit our hearts with one another. That's, for many of us in the Northwest, that's not our happy place. But that's what Jesus' family looks like. It's not silent around the dinner table of the king. It's a place of talking and sharing and conversing. And in our church, if you're not part of a life group or if your life group is not a place that is characterized by self-revealing love, maybe it's time for you to be the one that starts that and takes that deeper. And it's a love that delights in obedience. A love that delights in obedience. We, we struggle talking about unconditional love when what that means is I have to like you when you're doing something I don't like, but we really enjoy unconditional love. And what that means is, I don't have to obey Jesus, but you have to love me anyway. Right? We kind of have some of that Jekyll and Hyde thing going on here. A, a love that is like Christ, a godly love, is a love that recognizes that in our obedience to his commandments is the enjoyment of our love. And so the church ought to be a holy place. And sometimes we talk about, we don't want to have as Christians a holier-than-thou-art attitude but we should have a holier-than-thou-art reality. Because if we don't care about keeping His commandments more than the world does, what's going on? If we don't understand that our joy comes from obedience in a way that the world can't understand, what's going on? 
Our love, our joy ought to rejoice in obedience to God's commandments, not pointing to any pride of our own, but pointing into how much we enjoy enjoying the love of our Father. Is our love godly? And you can take that right into every area of your life. Is your marriage like that? Is is your parenting that kind of a love? Is that how you're operating in your workplace? Is that what it looks like when you're hanging out with the boys? Is this our love? Is our obedience loving? Secondly, is our obedience loving? Is our obedience characterized by the kind of love that Jesus has called us to? And I I flip this around this way for this reason. It's so easy in a fallen world where we have this sin nature for us to get righteousness and love somehow at odds with one another. To, to somehow feel like it's an either-or type of a thing. That it's, it's like a lever. Is your relationship going to be more loving or more righteous? Right? If, in, in parenting terms, they talk about, is your parenting style authoritarian or permissive? And we sometimes pretend that that's the same categories as like committed to obedience or loving. It's, it's not. It's not. What motivates your obedience to God? If you're honest, why do you care about his commands? And if the answer is, well, I don't really care about his commands because I know God loves me anyway. You're not, you have not actually experienced the joy of abiding in the love of Christ then. It's like saying, I'm really glad my father's got that fire in there waiting for me, but I'm just going to stay out here. Or perhaps you are so hung up on the rules because you think it's a test. You were that kid in high school that had a nervous breakdown when you didn't get a perfect score on every paper. And the goal of high school was not to learn the material and enjoy knowledge and wisdom. It was to get perfect scores on every paper. And some of us live our Christian lives like we are trying to be the straight-A student. We're not. Jesus was the straight-A student. Our pursuit of righteousness is because we want to enjoy the love of God. And we want to live the love of God with one another. Is our obedience loving? Is our joy obedient? Lastly, is our joy obedient? Is that what what we look to to derive our, our enjoyment of the love of God? Is that we are walking in the commands of Christ which allows us to abide in the experience of his love, which gives us great joy as we rest in who he is, as we live as he has called us to live, and therefore we have a subtle gladness no matter what's happening in our life around us. Is our joy obedient? Or is our joy sort of like therapeutic? When we we look at our soul and we realize our soul is distressed, what do we do? do? Do we run to God and we say, God, remind me again who you are. Remind me again how I can live in obedience to you today so that at the end of today, I can go to bed and I can say, I've been faithful to my Father who wins at the end, who is good to me in the middle, who secured everything in the past, and therefore I'm okay. Or is it, I've got to find the right song, I've got to find the right book, I've got to talk to the right friend, I've got to find 
what, what is it that we run to to maximize our joy? We can diagnose our joy by looking at our obedience. We can diagnose our obedience by looking at our love. We can diagnose our love by looking to our Savior. And I trust that we can see that all of this then is incredibly relational. It's not the message of a corporate CEO giving his employees a pep talk. It's not a general trying to rally his troops. This is family talk. This is intimate talk reserved for the closest of relationships. And Jesus drives this reality home in verses 12 to 16. Look with me at verses 12 to 16, the intimacy of abiding in Christ. The intimacy of abiding in Christ. In verses 12 to 14, we see first that we share in Jesus' sacrifice. We share in Jesus' sacrifice. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This passage is not only famous among the church, among Christians. This is a well-known passage across the world. And it's worthy, not even just on its own, but much more so worthy of such fame when taken in its context. Jesus begins by connecting his teaching on obedience that he had just given to his teaching on love that he has been unfolding all evening in his upper room discourse. Remember, Jesus first taught this principle explicitly all the way back in John 13, 34, when he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And he's been circling back to this theme ever since. And here he uses it as the heart of what it means to keep Jesus' commandments. So this answers the question in the disciples' mind. Okay, if I need to abide in your love by obeying your commandments so that I can have fullness of joy, where do I begin? Well, here's where you begin, says Jesus. Love one another. Love them how? Love them with that same love with which I have been loved by the Father and have loved you, says Jesus. Do it my way. But that's where Jesus is now taking this to a whole new level. Up to this point, they had seen the love of Jesus in feeding, in leading, in teaching, in protecting. What we know, but the disciples did not yet know, was how Jesus was going, to, was going to complete or perfect his love for the disciples. So Jesus foreshadows the events in the day ahead by giving them a simple principle and then calling them to live up to it. And you can get away with this in the Greek a little better than you can in the English because they have a special tense when you want to talk about stuff considered all together without relationship to whether it happened in the past or the present or the future. And so when Jesus says, you are to love one another just as I have loved you, he's using that special tense. He's not just referring to how he has loved them in the past, which is how he can come across in the English, but he's speaking to the totality of his love for them that will ever be displayed. That's how I want you to love each other. Which brings us to verse 13. And it's simply a fact that there is no greater demonstration of friendship than complete self-sacrifice. You can't go beyond that. You can't give more than everything. To lay one's life down voluntarily for another is therefore rightly honored in almost every culture around the globe. It's why we have a memorial day to honor those who, from a human perspective, have lived this verse out on the battlefields of the world. And many more have demonstrated this, this sacrifice in rescuing victims from burning buildings and saving those who are drowning and giving their life in the process and on and on. It's a deed worthy of song and remembrance when a man or woman gives up life for another. But let's remember, as mortal people... We are those 
who are appointed to die somehow. Even if we choose an honorable death, it is with the knowledge that no person can choose no death. Except Jesus. He's the only man who could look at the grave as an optional future. How much more was his sacrifice, he who knew no sin and needed no death, to lay down his life for his friends? What friends? Well, he tells us, those friends who demonstrate their part in Jesus by obedience. What kind of obedience? Well, the obedience of loving the rest of Jesus' friends. Loving them how? In the same way they were loved. How was that? Unto death. It's a high call and a personal one to claim to be a friend of Jesus. Those who have believed on him are those who will love the brethren at all costs. That's what Jesus is teaching. And it's worth noting here that even though Jesus laid down his life for his friends, he didn't do so when we were being friendly, now did he? Jesus died for us when we were still sinners. He knew what we would become when he was done with us, but he died for us when we were utterly unlovely. In the body of Christ, we must remember that often our sacrifice does not come in response to the beauty and kindness of others, but rather in response to the very kinds of unkindness and division that makes sacrifice necessary in the first place. This is what the friends of Jesus do. They share in his example of sacrifice and multiply that great display a thousandfold in their dealings with one another. That's not the only sharing they enjoy because Jesus envelops us even closer in verse 15. Look at that, verse 15. We share in Jesus' secrets. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Sharing in the suffering of Jesus in love makes us friends, Jesus just taught us. And he wants to make sure we understand the significance of that. There is a distinction between slave and friend. A slave of a good master is called to obedience, even as we are. Also, slavery carries with it the idea of ownership, and that is true of us. As Paul taught us in 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20 we have been bought with a price, the price of the blood of Christ. Therefore, we aren't our own. We are owned by Christ. And indeed, to be a slave of God is a high privilege and more than we deserve, like the prodigal son who desired to return to his father and beg only to be a slave in his house so we would have cause for eternal gratitude for the right alone to be a slave in the house of God. But Jesus has given us more. He has made us friends. And what is the key distinction between being a slave only and being a friend? Well, in short, it is this, being brought into the inner circle of the master. Notice that the distinction isn't whether or not we must obey. Right? We must obey in every case, even as Jesus himself did. It is not slavery simply to have the responsibility to obey, even if our children sometimes feel that way. The difference is this. The one in authority shares his commands alone with his slaves. With his friends, he also shares his heart. His heart. And this is what we have been brought into in Christ. 
Jesus, who knows the fullness of the Father's heart and in whom the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, has revealed to us all that the Father has revealed to the Son. We are being brought into the inner circle of God himself. Can there be an honor higher than being the friend of God? The answer is, well, yes, actually. Look at verse 16. We share in Jesus' sonship. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And it's fun watching Jesus, the master teacher, draw all these threads together, his predestining choice of his own, our duty to be fruitful with the fruit that endures, our privilege to ask anything in the Father's or in Jesus' name of the Father. And seeing it all together here, we realize that this is the ultimate position of honor for those who are so manifestly dishonorable as we are. The initiative of love was not from our direction. It was from his direction. The terms of obedience were not established by us, but by him. The effect of our obedience is not governed by our fickleness, but by his permanence. Jesus is working all the details out so that we will be purchased back from sin. He's working all the details out so that we will work the fruits that demonstrate our obedience to God. But here is the final blessing He is also bringing all of this together so that in his name we will have the ultimate access to God, the access of a son. Friends do not ask whatever they wish and receive it of the father. That is the singular right of the obedient son who asks according to the will of the father. Only Jesus possesses this right and he's sharing it with us. In him we can boldly approach the throne of grace and receive. The sacrifice, the secrets, the sonship, which belong by direct rights to Jesus alone, are all given to us in him. Can there be any question that Jesus loves us with a truly unfathomable love? So take everything that we've been discussing over the last three chapters about Christ's love for us, the Father's love for Christ our love for one another, and package it all up in your mind. Take all of this glorious teaching, shove that into one little bag, and then read verse 17, the essence of abiding in Jesus. After all of that teaching, Jesus comes back one final time in verse 17 and says this, This I command you, that you love one another. This is the final period at the end of a long sentence. The word love has already occurred nine times just in our passage this morning alone. Many more times when you conclude all the teaching that Jesus has made since John 13, 34, when he brought the subject up, this is the conclusion. He will not speak of love again until the very end of his closing prayer to the Father in John 17, 23 to 26. When he told them at first to love one another, they had no idea what he meant. They had no idea what love meant. Even now, before the cross, they know so little. Even today here in this room, we comprehend not the height, the depth, nor the weight of the love of God. But in this love we stand, and in this love we must live. And if you are wondering what this means for loving those in the world, sit tight. Jesus is going to talk about the world next time. But the command here is for his followers, for his church. Love one another. 
What is love? Love is relational life. We can talk about all the different Greek words for love, and this one's a self-sacrificing love, and this is the family affection love and love of desire, and we can get all that. As Scripture unfolds it to us, love is relational life. Love is that virtue that characterizes the relational life of the Trinity, and it's what characterizes the life that we are called into. What does love do? Love does whatever it takes, including death, to secure that relationship. It's not just compassion sending resources to another Love brings people into relationship and keeps them there. Love is preparing a plate at your own table to share a meal with those you love. No greater picture of this will ever be seen than the feast Jesus is preparing for his marriage feast when he will sit us at his table and serve us in his home which forever after will be our home too. And that brings us to communion this morning. I invite the music team to come forward. Communion is a special meal that Christ instituted on this night as he taught his disciples. It's a meal that points in two directions. It's a meal that points back to the obedience of death that Christ modeled for us. It's a meal that reminds us of the incredible price that was paid in order for us to be made the children of God, to be able to abide in the love of God, and to allow us to all look at one another this morning and say, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are united in our love for each other as well. And so when we eat and when we drink, we remember him. But it's also a meal that points forward. It proclaims his death until he comes. And as Jesus even commented, I'm not going to drink. Now, he had something a lot better than this. But I am not going to drink the fruit of the vine again until my wedding day. It's a meal that reminds us that one day we enjoy a feast with our Savior. When love is perfected and complete, it looks forward to the joy that is his great joy and ought to be our great joy. And so as we get ready to partake of this and as we sing this song together, let's prepare our hearts to look back and remember what love looks like and to look ahead and remember why love is so joyful. And then as we partake together to remember this is where we live that out today.